Well, this morning we are finally wrapping up our series on the book of Acts. <laughs> and if you've, if you've been journeying along with us on this, we started this uh, the Sunday after Easter Sunday, or maybe what's traditionally called the second Sunday of Easter. And, uh, and so here we are finally wrapping it up. We've had 30 parts to this series. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, do the math. There's 28 chapters. That's true. But we did a couple of talks on, on the second chapter of Acts. There's, well, there's so much in all the chapters, but that one in particular, we took a little more time. And so here we are, and it says Acts series finale. <laughs> Doesn't that sound, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never, you know, I was never into like Lost or any of the big TV shows where you kind of build it all up until the series finale. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. But if you are the type that gets into you know, TV shows and seasons and series, this is it. This is the series finale. And so we're in season two, episode 16, which is chapter 28. And it all ends today. Or does it? <laughs> and that's sort of the kind of ending that you find in the book of Acts because you're kind of, you've been following, you know, first you, you trace the story of Peter as the lead voice for the church and you're following what Peter's doing in the miracles and the preaching and how he preaches the gospel. And then, and then this season two, if you will, we've been following Paul and, and how he's been carrying the gospel. It's good news, not just for a small group of people, but for the whole world. And we've been following along with it and thinking, this is marvelous. But the last few chapters have been Paul ba- being bounced around from one trial to another trial. And this is where it all ends, except that it's not the ending we sort of expected. It's not the dramatic ending either in a tragic way, nor is it the kind of ending in a triumphalistic way. We're used to endings that either it's like, whoa, it's all over, you know, everybody dies, that's the end. Or it's kind of triumphant, everybody's free, you know, Paul gets freed and Caesar gets saved and oh my gosh. This is neither sort of ending and you're kind of like, Luke, (laughs) why end like this? Have you ever been at, at a point in, in life where you thought, okay, this is it. This is the end. This is how it ends. This is the end of it all. This is the end of the world. And then all of a sudden you realize, whoops, no, it's not. The Mayans have. <laughs> I, I remember, I'm sort of, um, I, I get to be a little dramatic sometimes. Maybe you'd be surprised by that. Um, but I was one of those kids that read like um, too much of the Reader's Digest drama in real life stories. Remember those? Reader's Digest drama and it was always like some guy with a shark attack and how he survived or like ordinary life situations and all of a sudden, you know, these freakish accidents, but then they survived and you know, it's drama in real life. And as a kid, I don't know if it was a morbid fascination or whatever, but I loved reading drama in real life and I would just... I would read every one of them every time the new issue came in, except that it kind of began to mess with how I went through life. And there would be several moments all along the way where I thought, this is it. This is how it ends, you know. Uh, as a kid, I remember, you know, writing with a pencil and then, and then breaking it. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe a little bit of the lead got in, my, uh, got in my, under, you know, my hand. And I thought I was so convinced. I told my parents, I said, Dad, this is it. I've got lead poisoning. And then they said, no, you're, you're going to be fine. I'm like, if we don't get this out, I'm going to die, you know. I'm like, no, you're, you're going to be fine, you know. Hypochondriac, I think, is what they call that. And uh, a couple years ago, I was flying um, to Malaysia, and I had, you know, Greg Hampton with me, and we were going to, I was going to uh, go teach at a conference. And I, listen, I, 
I grew up in Malaysia. I've flown across the Pacific like 20 plus times. I mean, lots of times. And there is this one spot. How many of you have done this flight over the Pacific? Okay, not necessarily to Malaysia, but you know, over the Pacific. And there's, this, there's always a spot. Turns out it's always right over the equator where it gets a little rough, you know. And I, I know this, and yet... This one particular flight, you know, it was just a couple years ago. Everything's just getting really rough and the, the plane's kind of bouncing. And we had the kind of pilot or captain who, who didn't say anything, you know. And so then, then I start to fill in the silences, you know. Like, well, maybe he's not saying it because he's worried, you know. Maybe he's not saying it because he's sleeping, you know. He doesn't know what's going on. Like Jesus on the boat, you know. Only he can't calm the winds and the... And, and, uh, and I looked over at Greg, and, and he's kind of praying. Under his breath. He's never, you know, at this point, he had never left the country, you know, before. So I'm looking at him for some con- consolation. He's just looking at me like, you know. And so I'm praying, and we're both kind of praying, you know. And then, and then I, I look at him again, and, he, and he's got tears in his eyes. And he says, well, I always told my boys to be good, godly men. And I'm like, no, like you're, not, you're not helping right now. And I'm going and I'm playing the scenarios and I think, okay, this, this is it. This is how it ends, you know. And of course, it was not how it ended and, and here I am. But I wonder if there are different moments in our lives where situations around us maybe cause us to kind of feel a little doomsday-ish or feel a little bit like, okay, this, this is it. This is, this is where it all goes downhill. And maybe some of you, you, you know, you're very tuned into what's happening in our, in our culture or, or, or our country and you're thinking about the social landscape of things and maybe you think about the Hobby Lobby situation you think, wait a minute, so, so now they're forced to kind of pay for contraception that's not really contraception that has the potential to be abortive and you say, well, what kind of a country? Well, wait a minute, what, what's going on here and have we really come to this, right? Or maybe others of you are thinking about the, the tragedy in Newtown or maybe earlier this year in Aurora and you say, well, what is going on? I mean, what is the... This is it. This has got to be the end. Or maybe others of you are very mindful of the fiscal cliff that's, that we're just you know, sort of on this precipice of and you're thinking, okay, th- this is it. I mean, America, it's been nice. This might be the end. And, and maybe there are different things, different cues from culture all around us that make us sort of have this fear that this is it. This is the end. It surely can't... There's no hope beyond this. This is a dead end. Maybe for the rest of you or for others of you, you don't even need to think about socio, socio-cultural sort of situations. You're just thinking about your own life. And you're thinking about maybe a situation in, in, in your household. Maybe it's a, a marriage, a strained marriage, and you're thinking, gosh, is, is this it? Is this the end? Maybe your parents are thinking of, of, of a child that's uh, wandering a bit from the faith or gone away and you're thinking, gosh, is, is this it? Is this the end? Is this how it ends? Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a financial difficulty. Maybe it's a job situation. Whatever it may be, there are different triggers that happen to us where we sort of ask the question, okay, is this it? Is this how the story ends? And that's a little bit like Acts chapter 28. Last time we left Paul, there was a shipwreck. And we talked about him saying to the sailors, cheer up, God's with you. Or God's with me, rather. And because you're with me too, it's going to be okay. And they make it, you know, they do get shipwrecked on this island. And and, and Acts 28 kind of picks up a little bit of that story. It says they get shipwrecked on the island and everybody sort of knows that these, um, these, 
these prisoners, or, or these passengers on the ship, rather, were prisoners. And so Paul's sitting around with them, and, and um, he gets bitten by a snake. And they say, we knew it, this guy's cursed. He's, he's got to be like a, one of the worst criminals. He's got to be a murderer, and the gods are judging him because a snake is biting him. Remember last Sunday we talked about how we tend to have this image of God as a God who is retributive and how that's really more of a pagan image of God than a Christian image of God. Oh, God's looking to say, aha, gotcha, smite you, the almighty smiter. <laughs> and that's what these guys say about Paul. Like, oh, he must be cursed, a snake bit him. But then Paul shakes off the snake and doesn't die. And they're like, oh my gosh, he's a God. <laughs> you see how fickle, you know, culture can be? He's cursed. He's a god. And Paul moves on from there, and it turns out there's somebody on the island who's a very influential figure, and his father's ill, and Paul goes to that man's house, and in Jesus' name heals that man. All of a sudden, doors open, and you think, wow, the gospel cannot be stopped. This is pretty cool. And then as we, as we go on in the chapter, Paul finally makes his way to Rome. And he gets to Rome, and the first people he begins to seek out are Jewish leaders, because... Paul, just like in every city, he went to go find the synagogue first. He wants to first let the Jewish people know that Jesus is their Messiah, that he's the culmination of their hopes and their dreams, and he wants them to be the first to hear about it. And so this is what he does even in Rome. So pick it up with me in verse 20. He's addressing them, and he says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul's convinced Jesus is not just uh, you know, a spaceman who came to earth. He's the hope of Israel. He came out of your story. He's trying to tell them, this is your guy. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So they don't really know who Paul is. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. In other words, Paul, we don't really know much about you, haven't got any letters, you're not as big of a deal as you thought, um, but we have heard about this Jesus sect that you're part of, and that's kind of spoken against everywhere. And then they go on, they say, okay, but when they had an appointed day for him, they came to him at his lodging in, great, in greater numbers, and from morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this is similar to Jesus. You remember the story at the end of Luke's gospel where Luke says, Jesus testified to the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, everything about the, from the book of Moses and the prophets speaks of me. Do you remember this? So Jesus, Luke ends his volume one with Jesus explaining how the Old Testament speaks about himself. Oh, if there was a podcast of that. And then Luke adds, ends volume 2 with Paul speaking about how the Old Testament testifies of Jesus. You think Luke's trying to tell us something? He's trying to say, guys, all of the story of this first half here races to its culmination point in Jesus. But then verse 24, you'd think this is, this is one heck of a conference, you know, from morning until evening, Paul's teaching. It's like a preacher's dream. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. The gospel cannot be stopped. If there's one thing we've seen throughout the book of Acts, we've seen this theme, that the gospel cannot be stopped. Think about it. It begins with a fledgling group of 
disciples, and from the beginning, from chapter 1, we remember, we're reminded that they're down one. There used to be 12, now they're 11. And then they replace him with the 12, but we don't know what Matthias really ends up doing. And so we're sort of like, okay, it's kind of like playing a man short on the field, you know? And yet, God pours out His Spirit on them. He said, well, what's that going to do? I mean, there's all these people here who don't speak their language. Oh, they start speaking in other tongues, in other languages, and preaching the gospel. You're like, wow, God can do that? Like, Yeah, nothing's going to stop the gospel. And then Luke tells us about how there's Jewish opposition, how temple leaders and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin try to get them to stop and try to get them to shut up. But does it work? It doesn't work. They try to arrest them, and they get freed by angels. Like, oh my gosh, what do we have to do to these guys? And then there's Roman opposition, and, and you say, well, well, yeah, the imprisonment, stonings, that didn't work either. Like, what about Stephen? They martyred Stephen. There was martyrdom. It was, you know, yeah, that didn't stop. The church began to grow after that. You're like, oh my goodness. Just like that scene in, in Star Wars where Obi-Wan says, you can strike me down, but I will only be stronger. The church. <laughs> the church of Obi-Wan. No, no. So well, what, about, what about geographic restrictions? I mean, was the gospel able to cross geographic boundaries? Yes, so well that God like, supernaturally transports Philip to Samaria. What? So like, they're not even hindered by geography. Nope. Well, what, what about social status? Nope. Acts shows us a crippled man outside the temple, an outcast, being healed and welcomed in. And then Acts shows us a respected but Gentile centurion being filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is trying to say the gospel cannot be stopped. It's not going to be stopped by geographic boundaries. It's not going to be stopped by opposition. It's not going to be stopped by persecution. It's not going to be stopped by, um, by, by social boundaries. It's not going to be stopped. It's going to reach the lowest of the low and it's going to reach the highest of the high. This gospel is for everyone and it cannot be stopped. That's a powerful message. The gospel cannot be stopped, but it can be refused. Here these Jewish leaders hear Paul, and they hear Paul giving this most compelling all-day sermon. I mean, if anybody could give a day-long sermon, it'd be Paul. I'd go to that conference. And yet, even Paul, it says, and some of them disbelieved. Some of them refused to believe. The gospel cannot be stopped, but it can be refused. We can sort of say, okay, uh, I don't want this. Why? Because the message of Jesus forces you to a decision point, doesn't it? The gospel, after all, and we've talked about this over and over again throughout the series, is a royal announcement that Jesus is the saving King who saves, who stood in for us, who stands in, in our place, and wins the battle, forgives our sins, took, took the wrath of God, all of this stuff. When you, when you say Jesus is the saving King, all of these other themes get pulled into that. Atonement and forgiveness and all of it. Rescue But the trouble is, it's a very confrontational announcement, isn't it? If Jesus really is this saving king, then I have to say that I can't save myself. And then I have to say that I can't be king of myself. And so it forces you into uncomfortable places. And these Jewish leaders say, we we, we don't want to believe that. Dealing with an unbelieving response, or maybe dealing with an unbelieving world, is always difficult, isn't it? I, um, 
one of these days would really like to preach a sermon about what it means to be the people of God in a society where Christians no longer hold a, a place of influence or power or honor. Now, America has had a wonderful storied um, past. And we can all reference quotes from the founders and earlier presidents and all the stuff that were so filled with scriptures. And... But I wonder if we're approaching a day or if we're already here where all of a sudden Christianity is not the tone of our culture. Maybe you'd say, well, I, th- th- I think we're there. And as the church, we have to begin to ask ourselves, what's it like to be the people of God, not in Jerusalem, but in Rome? What's it like? What's it like to be the people of God when the overwhelming response is not faith, but unbelief? What's it like when not everybody accepts your values? And this, allow me this one rabbit trail. The Christian value system collapses without the Christian narrative. Let me say that again. Christian ethics, Christian values collapses without the Christian story. In other words, you cannot expect people to embrace the same values because it's generic morality. We don't live in that world anymore. You can't expect people to accept because, well, this is general morality. I mean, isn't this common sense morality? No. Listen, the truth is, if you're going to live in the Jesus way, you must first accept the Jesus truth. And the Jesus life. Until you say yes to Jesus, none of the value system that we want to call, we want to call it family values, you want to call it whatever you want to call it, the truth is, it collapses without the Jesus story. It collapses without the gospel. And the church in Acts knew that. That's why everywhere Paul went, he wasn't first trying to transform ethics. Paul doesn't give long lectures on how we should restore family values in Ephesus. That, you can't start there. He starts by saying, do you know that Jesus is God's saving king? When you start there, then everything else begins to fall into line. Does that make sense, church? One of these days, well, I really want to unpack this more because I think we've forgotten that Christian ethics or Christian values collapse without the Jesus story, without the Christian narrative. So the church in a pluralistic society, the church that's now in Rome and not in Jerusalem, the church has to take a a page from the book of Acts' playbook and say, all right, what's it like when authorities are against us? What's it like when officials are oppositional? What's it like when even religious leaders don't believe? What's it like to be on the fringe of society? You know what we do? We still keep preaching the gospel. Because the gospel cannot be stopped. But it can be refused. And so I think, uh, carry on here with me, jump down to verse 28. Acts 28, verse 28. Paul says, he he quotes Isaiah and he says, look, this was, God knew you were going to have dull hearts and reject. And he says, "So, so he's made a way for other people to join in. And he says, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Oof. Take that. Paul is not saying that God has rejected Israel wholesale. Paul is saying, God knew that you were going to have hard hearts. But God's plan from the beginning, even when He called Abraham, was how many nations? All nations. 
And Paul's saying, look, you're walking out, but others are coming in. If you ever read Romans 11 in, in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, it's a, it's a nice alternate lens for, for this. He, he uses a couple of phrases that I think are interesting. Peterson says, he says, the, the, the door that you walked out through, you left open, and so Gentiles were able to come in. That's an interesting image. But then later in the chapter he says, the same door that God is holding open to the Gentiles is the same door that you can come back in through after you've been provoked to jealousy, if you remember Romans 11. What is that door? Who is that door? Jesus. So this is, don't, don't read this as an anti-Semitic kind of thing. It's like, aha, you know, anti, it's not that. It's Paul saying, look, God's plan was always to bring others in. He knew you were going to have hard hearts, but look, Jesus is the door. And they're in. But let's bring this closer to home for us. Maybe the question that we begin to ask ourselves is, okay, well, well will you join God's story or will you insist on your own? Because the gospel keeps asking us that question every day. It says, okay, today, are you going to insist on doing it by yourself, for yourself, on your own, insist on your own story, or will you let God's story, that gospel story that cannot be stopped, will you join His? Will you let His story take over your life? In a few days, we'll, wel- we'll welcome in a new year, and, and you know, often we make New Year's resolutions, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do and there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions, I think it's wonderful, except that sometimes it can make us believe that we are lords over our own lives, masters over our own destinies, captains of our own fate. And there's a way of kind of taking charge, if you will, but in doing so, you shrink your story. It's kind of like what Jesus said. If you try to save your life, you will end up losing it. But if you lose your life, if you let yourself be caught up in me and my story and what I'm doing and what I have done for you, if you let me, if you let yourself get caught up in that, you'll find life. But if you hang on to like, well, this is what I want and these are my goals and this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to work harder and I'm going to get this and I'm going to save this and I'm going to do that. Great to have goals. Great to have planning. But there's a way in doing that that can sometimes make us think that we're in charge. And we're not. And the result is, when someone says, well, well, whose story are you part of? And you're like, well, my story, my script. This is what I want for my life. This is my script. This is how it's going to go. And and all the while, God is saying, look, you can do that, but it's not going to be as large and wonderful if you'd let me Take your story and make it part of mine. You know, a, a cool picture of this is actually in The Hobbit. Anybody, any of you read the book with our reading club or parts of it? Seen the movie, maybe? Okay. I know. I haven't, seen, I haven't got a chance to see the movie yet. It's a bit harder to get out with all our kiddos. Um, or with a baby, really. And um, So I haven't seen the movie. I've heard that... Um, that I, I guess what I didn't realize is that the movie only covers one-third of the story. Uh, and I've also heard that Peter Jackson sort of took the approach where he made the movie um, like the backstory of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where else Tolkien wrote The Hobbit as like a younger kid's story. So if you didn't know that, I've heard the movie's quite intense, where else the book is light, you know? Um, anyway, all to say, I, I reread The Hobbit again just because it's a fun, wonderful story. And I was, as I was prepping the sermon this week, I kept thinking about the scene where, Gan- you know, the opening scene where Gandalf comes to. 
Bilbo's you know, house, and, and, and he says, look, we've got, I've got an adventure for you. And he says, uh, no adventures today, thank you. <laughs> and, and then out of sheer habit or politeness, he says, but come back tomorrow for tea. And then he says, why did I just tell a wizard to come back for tea? You know? And then the next day comes, and you remember what happens. All of a sudden, these dwarfs start arriving at Bilbo's house. And you're like, what? He's, th- he's thinking, what, what's going What are you doing here? And they keep coming, they keep coming. And there's 12 of them, right, that, that, that come in all of a sudden. And each of them are demanding, and they're expecting tea and cake and beer and all this stuff. You know, It's Tolkien's language, not mine. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and all, all of these dwarfs come in, and then all of a sudden, he hears about their plan. And there's this treasure of gold, and there's a dragon and all of this stuff. And he's thinking, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And Gandalf is saying, I've chosen, you know, Bilbo, you're the one, you're going to be the great burglar. And, and nobody believes him, least of all, Mr. Baggins. So here's one of these quotes. They're arguing about it. And they're like, how can this hobbit be chosen for this? He doesn't, he's, you know, he's scared and all of this stuff. And Gandalf says, that's right, said Gandalf. Let's have no more argument. I have chosen Mr. Baggins. And that ought to be enough for all of you. There's a lot more in him than you guess, and a deal more than he has any idea of himself. I love that. There's a lot more in him than you think, and more than he would suspect. You may, possibly, all live to thank me yet. And of course they do. Of course, as it turns out, you see something begins to happen in Mr. Baggins' own life, where as he leads the way, all of a sudden he discovers a larger story that he's been swept up in, and he, some things come out of him that he never knew were in him, and toward the end of it, finally, Bilbo and Gandalf are walking back, and they're taking the journey back, and Gandalf looked at him, and he says, my dear Bilbo, he said, something is the matter with you. You are not the hobbit that you were. Isn't that what happens to us? Jesus interrupts our lives and says, come, follow me. So Jesus, I had no adventures today, thank you. I want my small story where I'm in control, where I can do it, and I will try harder to be a good person, and I will do And Jesus is saying, no, look, I'm inviting you into a much bigger story where I'm in charge. And as a result, we get transformed. Toward the end of it, they start to reflect on all the, the different prophecies, and, and Bilbo says, it says, then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true, After a fashion, said Bilbo. Of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? I love that. In other words, you don't think that like you did this, right? You don't think that all those little things along with that. You don't think that was you, do you? You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you. But you're only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. <laughs> it's a good picture, isn't it? God says, well, you, you didn't think this was all about you just sort of becoming a better person, did you? You, you do know that my plan from the beginning was to have a people and through this people to display my glory in the world. You, you do know that that was my plan, right? You do know that I'm pouring these things into your life so that others can see me. You, you, you do know that you're caught up in my story. And though I love you and I'm quite fond of you, you're quite a little fellow in a much wider world. 
Something happens to us when we join God's story. The world gets larger, and we become different. But we still haven't dealt with this question that we began with. What about the end? What about endings? So the last two verses in the book of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, talking about Paul, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God's kingdom has no end. This is Christmas time. We've been thinking about those words that Isaiah had, where he says, look, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. And he shall reign forever. It's not just a song. Like it's really true. Jesus' kingdom has no end. So as Luke tricked us here, because Paul ends up in prison. Like, well, that's not the ending I was hoping for. And Luke's kind of saying, well, it's not the end. God's kingdom has no end. And if even Paul in prison continued to preach boldly about the kingdom of God and preach the gospel without any hindrance, if even Paul continued, guess what is true about you and me? That the story still continues through you. Still continues through me. We are now the church living this out preaching the gospel, teaching the kingdom. Okay. But there's something else I want us to see this morning. It's this, that with God, even the end is not the end. With God, even the end is not the end. What do I mean by that? The places in your life where you think, this is it. It's got to be the end. I've never dealt with this kind of tragedy before. I've never felt felt this kind of grief before. I've never had this much uncertainty before. We've never been without a job before. We've never done this before. We've never been here before. This must be the end. And God wants us to believe this morning that with God, even the end is not really the end. Even the place where you think, this is it. How can anything good come out of this? This has got to be it. And it wasn't the ending I was hoping for. And God says, you know what? With me, the end is never really the end. It's not. There's always something beyond it. There's always something beyond this moment and this place. Jesus gets the last word. With God, even the end is not really the end. Now think for a moment about what kind of people you would be if the Holy Spirit really made that come alive in your hearts. How would you live if you knew you couldn't die? We're a people that's so easily gripped by fear. I'm a person, I confessed to you earlier, of all kinds of irrational fears. And maybe if we're honest, we'd say, you know, at the bottom, the root fear of all fears is the fear of death. But what if you really believed in the resurrection? What if you really believe that even death will not be the end? What if you believe that even the very worst that we could imagine in our world on the earth, even death is not the end? How would you live if you knew you couldn't die? 
How much of your actions would be motivated by love, maybe, instead of by fear? How many, how many decisions would you make differently if you were thinking about love instead of fear and protectiveness and defensiveness? Christians ought not to be people that, that play out worst case scenarios and then begin to make our lives smaller and smaller. That's going back into that small story thing. Christians ought to be people that say, yeah, well, how would we live if we knew, well, we can't die because even death has He overcome. Even death will not be the end. What would you risk if you knew you couldn't lose? <laughs> what would you risk if you knew you couldn't lose? I'm not talking about abandoning Dave Ramsey's financial management and throwing away your money envelopes. Now, okay, who cares about this? Let's risk it all! I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kinds of risks that maybe takes you out of your comfort zone. Maybe says, well, I, I mean, I, I've never talked to my neighbor about church. I mean, that's, I mean, what would he think? Maybe it's a risk of reputation. Maybe it's a risk of comfort. What would you risk if you knew you can't lose? I get the feeling that this is how Paul and the other Christians in the book of Acts lived. They took extraordinary risks. Not because they were foolish. This is not some sort of post-enlightenment, romantic era version of like, just live the dream, you know. Walt Disney's follow your heart. No, this, is, this is different than that. This is saying, what if you knew <laughs> that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? You have nothing to lose here. How would you love if you knew love would win? How would you love if you knew love would win? Think about that. How would you love if you knew that love would win? I think there's so many times in our relationships, maybe friendships, maybe marriages, where we're afraid to sort of make the decision of love or of forgiveness because we have this fear of like, well, if I do that, they're just going to take advantage of me. And if I choose to forgive this person, what's going to happen? I've got to be protectionistic. I've got, to, I've got to sort of make the world smaller. But what if you really believe that hatred doesn't win, love wins? See, on the cross, Jesus embodied the decision that he'd lived his whole life. A life of openness, a life of unguardedness, a life that said, yes, take, be healed, be fed, receive, receive, receive. And he did, in the end, get manipulated and tricked, betrayed, killed. But it doesn't end with the crucifixion, does it? It ends with God saying, this is my son who I love and I'm raising him up again. What if you really believe that that's what God would do for you? So, well, Glenn, you don't understand. I, I, have, I have gone to this person and I have gone to this person and I have tried to talk to them and I've tried to forgive them and I've tried, you know. And I'm not saying that you can repair every relationship. I get that. And there is a difference between forgiveness and trust. I get that. Believe me, I get that. There are some relationships that I have never been able to recover because the other person's not willing to rebuild the trust. I get that's important. I, I, I'm with you. 
But we ought never to be the sort of people that say, well, I'm going to stop loving that person because that's too risky. We ought never to be that. How would you love if you really believed that love would win? As a young child, I was always fascinated by stories of missionaries. All growing up, um, we had different people that would come to our church and speak to our children, and they would tell them missionary stories. And when I was 10, my parents bought me my first um, biography. It was the biography of George Mueller, who opened all those orphanages in England. And then shortly after that, you know, they gave me the biography of John Wesley and Hudson Taylor. And, my, and much of my teen years were spent reading the stories of missionaries. And I was, it captured my imagination because it let me know that there are people who, because they believe in Jesus, live this kind of life. They live as if the end is not really the end. They live as if the worst that could happen is not really the end. Think how freeing that is. These are people who said, get on a boat, move to China. All right. God's saying that. I'll do that. But it's not just missionaries and stories like that. I think we practice it every day. I think every time you... you, you start the process of beginning to forgive. And forgiveness is a journey. It is a process. It's not just a decision. It, it may start with a decision, but, but, it, but it, it unfolds over time. Every time you choose that instead of resentment and the grudge, you're living like you believe the end is not the end. Every time you sort of say, well, maybe this relationship isn't totally over, you're living like you believe that the end is not the end. Every time you serve, <laughs> any of you couples, you, any of you husbands and wives get into the who's working harder game? It's a favorite game at our household. Not anymore because I know who's working harder and it's not me. <laughs> but we used to play that game. Oh, babe, you know, listen, I just, I had these appointments all day and oh, well, I've had the other these. Who needs to get up with so-and-so and who needs to do this? Well, I mean, I've got to get up in the morning and, you know, and you play this game of who's working harder? Come on, you play that too, don't you? Okay. I'm confessing all my sins to you this morning. But when you believe that love ultimately wins, you'll, you'll always say, all right, well, I'll sacrifice. I'm not keeping score. I'm not going to keep track of this. Well, that's really risky. Like, what if it's uneven? My kids are really concerned about things that are fair and not fair. Kids have a profound sense of injustice in the world. (laughs) When you live like the end is not really the end, you stop keeping score about serving each other. Because you think, we're not trying to get it all level here. I believe that in the end, love and sacrificial love wins. It wins. It, it has the last word, not resentment. St. Francis called this the cruciform life. If you read earlier the, the, the fictional book about the pastor who discovered St. Francis' life, he called it the cruciform life. Why? Because it's a life lived wide open, unguarded, wide open. A life that truly believes that even the worst, even death, will not be the end. Even the end is not really the end. You know what I'm sort of struck by is 
what happens to people when they begin to live beyond the moment that, that, that should have been or could have been the end. I have a good friend who has gone through just tragic grief. That's the kind of moment you think, oh, he's probably going to you know, shut it down. Instead, he serves, and thinks of others, buys gifts, helps out, because even the end is not the end. I know a mom who, a couple years ago, she was so overwhelmed, there's no way, I just don't have time, I, I can't even get together with my friends, and decided to kind of bring some moms together and say, well, maybe, may, I don't know, maybe I'll help organize a few... And all of a sudden, that began to be this life-giving thing. These moms began... Why? Because what you think is the end is not the end. And you begin to serve beyond that. This last week, New Life Church had the opportunity to bring meals and and host and, and be with families in our city who are in transition, currently without homes. A few months ago, or maybe a month ago, when Bobby Nicholas was exploring how we could partner with them. He, he told me this morning, he says, we were thinking about maybe doing it next year. And then this organization came to us and says, we don't have anyone to help with these families during Christmas week. And Bobby says, well, I, I, I bet New Life could help. I said, no, no, Bobby, look, this is the end. This is the end of our, this is our limit. We, we, we're at the end. We can't serve anymore. We, we, we're, we're sort of overcommitted here. But what if even the end is not the end? And so we said, yes, so, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll host them and put them in the World Prayer Center. And, and you all came and brought meals. Curtis, Susie, others of you, folks from the North Campus. We, we brought a breakfast one morning. There were four families, three of the families told our volunteers, our leaders this week, that they've made the decision to make New Life Church their home church. One family came to Christ this week. One family this guy came, began their journey sort of belligerent, bad attitude, you know, I'm sure frustrated with how life has turned out. Here's the miracle of it. When you live like the end is not the end, you help others to see that their end is not the end. When you begin to live like this end is not really the end, it continues then others who are at dead ends in their points, like these families, like this dad who felt like this has got to be the end, all of a sudden because you served, because you helped, because you hosted them, he began to see there's something different about this. Maybe my end of the road is not the end of the road. And one of our volunteers got to say, you know what, with Jesus, it's never the end. And he said yes to Jesus this week. Church, that's a miracle. Here's Paul in prison. Paul could have shut it down and said, okay, well, guys, didn't work. I tried all the appeals I could. I used my Jewish card, sorry, my Pharisee training, my upbringing, my Roman citizenship, my good Greek. Remember this? He used every card he had. I appealed to Caesar, and he ended up in jail. The end, except that it's not. It says, and Paul welcomed all who came to him. What is your prison this morning? What is the place where you think, oh, this is the end. I ought to just shut it down and get ready to die. Or would you say, you know what? I wonder if even in the middle of this, I can begin to welcome others in and proclaim the kingdom of God to them. I believe that if you do that, you will find 
that this kingdom has no end. This gospel cannot be stopped. You're choosing a larger story. That's what Jesus is inviting you into this morning. On the last Sunday of the year, when you think that all you have is all there is, when you think that all you can do is all there is to be done, Jesus is saying, no, it's not. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has done for you what you could never do for yourself. I am the one who took all of your failures and all your weakness and all of your sin and all of your brokenness upon myself. I took the weight of it so that life can abound to you. So that your dead ends are no longer dead ends. So that the end is not really the end. Amen? As we come to the table this morning, that's exactly what we are being invited to receive. We're being invited to receive the bread that makes us think of Christ's body. And we're being invited to take the cup that makes us think of Christ's blood. And to remind us that on the cross, Jesus took it all. So that the moment that we say, all right, God, I'm done. I turn it over to you. He says, yes, yes, yes. Welcome to a kingdom that can't be stopped. Welcome to a good news that brings life to dead places. We're going to take a moment and just begin to quiet our hearts and, and confess our sin. And Confession is not... Here again, it's a picture of this whole message because confession can feel like the end of the road. You're like, you're saying, God, I messed up. And God's saying, yeah, I know. And I've provided for that. I've forgiven that. I've cleansed that. I've washed you clean. Confession is the moment where we admit that on our own we would have nothing but dead ends. But with God, the end is never the end. So let's quiet our hearts and maybe let the Holy Spirit kind of show you places in your life where you've been clinging, hanging on to something. And, and, and let's have a, a fresh opportunity to say, Jesus, this, this Christian life is not a do-it-yourself project. This isn't about me making it my story and my Christian walk and my journey. This is about me saying yes to you. All that you are, all that you've done, all that you're doing. Take a moment and let the Holy Spirit begin to work in your hearts this morning.